Turn your Bibles with me yet again to Mark chapter 7. We come into a new chapter in our study of the book of Mark as we work through it verse by verse. I trust that this time of study has been encouragement to you. Have you ever considered what one might be missing? Maybe even you are missing when we simply gloss over a passage of Scripture on the basis that it seems too hard to understand on the first, second, or maybe even third glance. Or we might put the question another way. What does one do when you read a Bible verse or a group of Bible verses and it doesn't seem to make a lot of sense? Well, one answer might be, you know, there's over 31,000 Bible verses to choose from, why get bogged down with a few that might be a little more difficult? You've got so many more to choose from. Simply do that. And I can sympathize with that answer, as you probably can as well. Our time is limited, and each one's level of maturity in the Word is different, and there are probably even times to set aside a particularly difficult passage of Scripture and move to something a bit more clear. But... What about if you're the preacher and you have to stand and proclaim the truth of God's word? You have to preach the text. Obviously, that's an entirely different matter. And we come to a passage this morning in our study of Mark that at first, second, and even third glance leaves us a bit cross-eyed. Consider a bit of the dilemma with me. Mark has just gotten finished telling us of the wonder of Christ as the Son of God by highlighting and displaying in vivid detail the power and authority of Christ over all things, including the wind, the sea, the physical elements of food, the ability to heal the sick by heal the sick through faith by his very presence. And yet Mark 7, 1 through 13 doesn't fall into any of those categories. So what are we supposed to do with context? But then we have the actual text here that seems a bit confusing. Is the main point of the text the authority of the word of God? Or is the main point the interaction with the Pharisees and the scribes? Or the conflict with them? Is it the question concerning cleanliness by the Pharisees and scribes at the main point? Because if, you, if you're a, a visitor this morning... You might be looking at this passage and thinking, you know, really we might as well just stand up and leave. I'm reading this passage. This gentleman just read this passage and and I'm looking here and I'm thinking I'm not a Jewish religious leader this morning. Who cares really about whether you wash your hands before every meal or your pots and pans are scrubbed perfectly clean, right? Right? Tell me how that's supposed to apply to my actual daily life. I've got difficulties. I've got troubles. I've got burdens. What does this have to do? I'm not a germ freak who really cares about the passage. How does it really speak to me? 2 Timothy 3, 15 and 16 reminds us that all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And certainly Paul, when he was writing that passage, is referring to the scripture of the Old Testament 
But now we have the entirety of the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament. And so we're reminded by this passage and by that passage that we don't simply gloss over a passage, a text that puts up a bit of fight. No, we, we wrestle with the text. So let's see what God has to say to us this morning. Let's see what he wants to show us about himself and what he wants us to see about ourselves. And when we do that, as we will do this morning, we will quickly realize that all scripture, including this passage, is profitable for our daily lives. Every scripture has application for what we are going through. And this passage today will remind us yet again that since Christ is God, the word of God is to have the final authority in our lives. Since Christ is God, the word of God is to have final authority in our lives. Look with me at the text. In verses one and two, Mark sets the stage, if you will. Now, we're not going to simply gloss over these verses. It's the backdrop, really, of the entire remaining 11 verses that we're studying this morning. It sets the, tune, the, the mood, the tone for the scene that's to be played out. Notice, he says, Now, when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. We've noted in previous verses in Mark of the continually escalating conflict between Christ and others. Christ, all the way back in Mark 1, he comes in conflict with Satan while he's out in the wilderness. And Satan comes and tempts him. Later in chapter 1, Christ comes into conflict with a demon. Chapter 3, verse 6, we're told that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, have had such a difficulty with Christ, they are now conspiring with others on how they might destroy Jesus Christ. And so the conflict we see here as a backdrop of Mark 7 is once again with scribes and Pharisees. And it's not some chance meeting as if I walk into town, they walk into town, and you sort of get that awkward, ooh, there's those people. I know they disagree with me. There's a bit of tension in the relationship. And you sort of, hey, and they walk by and you walk by. No, this, was a, this wasn't a chance meeting at all. This is a confrontation. The scribes, the Pharisees coming to meet him, coming to confront him. The tension is incredibly high. I imagine if you were there that day, there would have been quite a bit of cut the tension with a knife type feeling, very um, tense. Not many people speaking, waiting to hear what's going to happen. And they come and they simply ask a question, but it's not some question just by way of wanting to know. They're wanting to set a trap for him for the purpose of destroying him. And notice their issue, and it seems almost silly to us this morning. They notice that some of the disciples weren't washing their hands before eating. Now, if you're a parent, you might notice at times that your little child hasn't washed their dirty hands before eating, and so you encourage them to do so. But I don't know of any of us who have gone to a fellowship luncheon and they look over there and say, why isn't your family washing their hands this morning? It seems a bit odd, doesn't it? So trivial. There's bigger things at stake than washing of hands. 
But let's put aside the question for just a moment before we get further into the passage and let's be reminded yet again that as followers of Christ, we will come into conflict with others. Christ has conflict, we will have conflict. Matthew 10, 34, we're told by Christ that he came not to bring peace but a sword, certainly not a literal sword, but truth to us, in us, that divides. It divides families, it divides people. The gospel divides. It creates division between believers and unbelievers. And so as Christians, we must expect to have conflict with others. It's going to happen. We shouldn't be taken by surprise. And when that conflict comes between you and another person, challenging you over your decision to follow Christ and the choices you are making in life as you follow Christ, where should one turn? And the answer is the Word of God. The Word of God is where we are to turn when we come into conflict. Because the Word of God is to have final authority in our lives. It is the source of encouragement, strengthening, comfort, hope, direction, help as we deal with conflict. If we're to turn away from Scripture in the midst of conflict, in a sense we're turning away from God to find help, comfort, encouragement outside of God. And yet if we believe that this scripture is completely sufficient for our lives in conflict, let's turn here. Let's go to the word of God. Let's make the choice to fly to scripture when we come under pressure for being followers of Christ. Now if you're still looking at the text, verses 3 and 4 of Mark 7 have a very interesting literary motif. It's as if someone has, has come into the room, maybe you're watching a, a video, or maybe you come into a, a room where somebody else has been watching a video, and they pause the video and they turn to you and say, you haven't seen the video, we're at 30 minutes in, let me set the stage, the context of what is happening. Otherwise, that's not going to make any sense for you, right? And it's just as if Mark has done the same thing. He's sort of saying, let me fill you in on the background. Remember... Mark is writing to the early Gentile church. They aren't familiar with Jewish customs. We aren't familiar with Jewish customs. And so Mark gives a bit of background. That's really what three and four is. Your Bible might even have some parentheses there as if, let me take a step away from the scene, give you a bit of background, and then we'll enter back in. A Jewish audience certainly wouldn't have needed the historical context of these traditions, but the Gentile church did and even does today. We need to understand the background, why they would be asking such a question. And look what Mark tells us. For the Pharisees and all the Jews, notice all the Jews, do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And then when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe such as the washing of cups, pots, copper vessels, dining couches. So what's going on here? Well, very simply, the laws of cleanliness for the priest, the laws of cleanliness for the priest, as given in the Old Testament book of Leviticus, has been superimposed on the top of everyone, priest or no priest, as a means of right living. Or, you could say that over the years, all these laws had mushroomed not only beyond priest, but had been added to in all sorts of crazy ways. And the Old Testament law was given by God to Moses. 
But the Jews didn't just view the written Old Testament law, and that's the key to this passage. They didn't just view the written Old Testament law, they also viewed something called the oral law. Moses had written down the law of God, but they also believed that there were many ways of application of the law not written down that were applicable to the daily life they were being, that were being passed down from age to age. So here's the law given by God to Moses, but it doesn't deal with everything. So someone comes along and says, hey, this is a way to apply this teaching. He tells a one tradition, that tradition to one particular generation. They pass it down generation to generation. It's sort of like the little game telephone. By the time you get to the end, the thing's blown completely out of proportion. It was no longer a, maybe a simple way to help apply Scripture. It was now on level with Scripture. The oral law was passed down. It was expanded and contracted, mostly expanded, until it became an actual written document many years after the writing of Mark. It's called the Mishnah. And you can actually go look it up. Here in Mark 7, the oral law has not been written down, but simply passed verbally from generation to generation. And the authority of the oral law had become way more than simply good suggestions, but was now actually equal with God's word. And as we will see here momentarily, if God's word does not have the final authority in our lives, then it has no authority at all in our lives. It's actually voided out. So the question posed to Jesus concerning the cleanliness of the disciples while eating in verse 5 is not a question of cleanliness. It's not a question of cleanliness. It's a question of authority. Who has the final authority? And Christ certainly wastes no time in helping them to see that core issue. Look in verse 6 and 7. He quotes from Isaiah 29. And he said to them, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And then he begins to give them, in the remaining part of here, of Mark 7, 1 through 13, a fine example of their hypocrisy by highlighting for them a tradition that is used to reject the commandment of God. So in our remaining time, here's what I would like you to see. I want to highlight two aspects of the authority of God's word as found in this passage. So if God's word is to have final authority in our lives, then we have got to understand these two aspects of God's authority of his word as found in Mark 7, 1 through 13. And here's the two that we're going to look at. God's word is the authority on authentic worship. God's word is the authority on authentic worship. And number two, God's word has authority only if it's the final authority. God's word has authority only if it's the final authority. We're going to take these one at a time. But before we, before we even unpack those... Let's be reminded by why God's word has authority at all. Why do we say this is God's word and it has authority and is the final authority? Why should we recognize that God's word has authority in our lives? And I want to very quickly, before we get into these particular aspects of the authority of God's word, I want to give us five quick reasons. I'm not going to read these passages of scripture. 
I would encourage you to write them down and look them up this afternoon. But five reasons why, and there's many others, but five that we can look at as reasons that this, as God's word, has all authority. Number one, because God, through Christ, created all things by his spoken command. Because God, through Christ, created all things by his spoken command. Where do you find that? You find that in Colossians 1, 15 through 19, and you find that in Genesis 1. God's word has power to bring everything we see out of nothing. He speaks and something is created. Number two, because the word of God is promised to be sufficient for us. 2 Timothy 3, 15 through 16, the sufficiency of God's word. The word of God has authority because it is promised to be sufficient for us. Number three, because Christ uses the word of God to contradict and repulse the second most powerful created force, namely Satan in Matthew 4. God uses, Christ uses the word of God to contradict and repulse Satan in Matthew 4. Fourth reason why we recognize that the word of God has authority in our lives. Because God has told us that his word was written by men under the direction of the Holy Spirit. 2 Peter 1.20 2 Peter 1.20 God tells us that his word was written by men but inspired directed by the Holy Spirit. Well, all of that is rooted in the character of God. Reason number five, because God is perfect, Psalm 18, verse 30. He is eternal, Psalm 70, excuse me, Psalm 90, verse 2. And because God never changes, Numbers 23, 19, his word is perfect, Proverbs 30, verse 5, it is eternal, 1 Peter 1, 25, and never changes, Matthew 24, 35. If God is perfect, if God is eternal, and God never changes, which he is, then so is his word. His word has authority. His word is the final authority. And because God's word has authority and is the final authority, brothers and sisters, we cannot play loose with the word of God. We cannot play fast and loose with the word of God. To undermine the authority of the word of God is to undermine the authority of God himself and is to undermine the firm foundation of our faith. We sang that this morning. How firm a foundation, ye saints of the Lord, is laid for your faith in his excellent word. Recently, some of you may have read online, recently a a very high-profile preacher of one of the largest churches in America addressed his audience with a message entitled, Who Needs God? The Bible Told Me So. And in the message, he, by God's grace, affirms the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. But he tells his listeners that if we believe the work of Christ based solely on Scripture, we've got trouble. Quote, If the Bible is the foundation of your faith, here's the problem. It's all or nothing. Christianity becomes a fragile house of cards religion, unquote. 
And he claims that the infallibility, infallibility, the perfectness of Scripture is too hard to defend and should lead us to be wary of our Christianity being based solely on the fact that the Bible tells us so. Brothers and sisters, when we begin to play fast and loose with the authority of God's word as the inspired word of God, we don't descend some slippery little slope into heresy. We fall off the edge of a cliff straight down onto rocks that destroy us and all those that are following us. We cannot play fast and loose with the word of God. It is to be the final authority. It is authoritative in our lives. So let's look in closing at these two aspects that I mentioned before of God's word that highlights the final authority his word is to have in our lives. One, God's word is the authority on authentic worship. You see this articulated in verse six and seven of Mark chapter seven. Christ calling out the scribes, calling out the Pharisees, and in his calling them out, he calls them hypocrites. And this doesn't seem like some gentle, meek, and mild, loving Christ that we've been looking at. It seems quite rude, actually. He just blatantly says, you hypocrites. I don't know if you've done that to your friends in the past, but it doesn't come across too well. And oftentimes, we don't view the way Christ contradicts sin as meek, mild, and loving because our view of meek, mild, and loving is based upon acceptance, not upon change. Is it not more loving of Christ to confront their sin than to allow them to continue in their blind pursuit of false worship? Christ confronts the Pharisees and scribes in their sin here. And he confronts them head on because they needed it. And, and what a kindness in like manner is the fact that Christ has confronted us in our sin. We had no ability in our unbelief and our lost estate to do anything about our sin. But unless Christ came to earth in obedience to the Father out of love to deal with our sin, to confront our sin, we have no hope either. So we should look at this passage and say, what a wonder is Jesus Christ our Savior that he would confront my sin. How loving is that? A sinner can't deal with his sin. A sinner can't save himself from his sin. A sinner can only be saved by someone sinless. Christ, the sinless Son of God, came in order to trade his sinless nature for the sinful nature of those who will trust in him alone for salvation. Or, in essence, he's telling them that unless your worship stems from a changed life by the saving power of Jesus Christ, your worship is only skin deep. That's what he's saying. You honor me with your lips, but the heart's far from me. Isaiah 111 What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams, the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. Psalm 51, 16 and 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering, the sacrifices of God, or a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. You see, outward worship without an inner desire, is offensive to God. And without Christ doing the work of transformation in a sinful heart, we will have no desire. God's word dictates for us what is 
authentic worship. And Christ is calling out the Pharisees for promoting the outward to the neglect of the inward heart motivation. What makes authentic worship is the realization that the blood of Christ has been shed for me a sinner and then walking in repentance and faith by his amazing grace. That's what makes authentic worship. Not whether or not I conform to a bunch of traditions of men. Number one, God's word is the authority on authentic worship. Finally, God's word has authority only if it's the final authority. Now you notice this conflict with the Pharisees and scribes in Christ arises from their perception of how one finds approval from God. How does one find approval from God? Does, is it through, through the following of Scripture or through traditions? And the authority by which we know what God approves or disapproves of, who has that final authority? How do we know what God approves of? Is it by tradition or is it by Scripture? Moses gave the law in Exodus 20, verse 12, of how one is to relate to parents. And the Pharisees came up with a tradition to circumvent the responsibility. Namely, I'll just take whatever I might have that I would use to care for my parents, and I'm going to give it to God, and therefore I'm now free from my responsibility. Don't have anything. I gave it to God. I don't have to do anything now. Now, I want to be very clear with us this morning. It's this. It is clear in Scripture especially if you just read the book of Romans, that each of us are going to have traditions, we're going to have boundaries, we're going to have application of Scripture that is specific to us that helps us apply the Word of God. David even said, the boundaries have fallen in goodly places. They're, they're well-defined for me that I might give glory to God in the way I'm living. And All of us have particular struggles with sin that require that we maybe set up wise parameters that we might not fall into that sin. And Christ is is not stating here in these passages that that is wrong. No, that's not what he's saying at all. But he's making it very clear that the final authority by which we determine what is to be done or not done is God's word. God's word is the final authority. Or to put it another way, what must be the authority to determine how we deal with a differing position between one another must be God's word. One of the dangers of the church, in the church today, and I, I suppose it's really been a danger for quite some time, is the, is the Christian conference. Now don't get me wrong, I like a good Christian conference as much as the next person, but if we aren't careful, very careful, we can slip into seeing that the conference speaker as an authority that we, at times, even unconsciously place over the Word of God. Our beliefs on this or that doctrine or this or that Christian liberty isn't based on our understanding of the Word, but rather are on our agreement with what that speaker has articulated. And there's many other things that fall into that category. We hold to the London Baptist Confession here. We also hold to the New Hampshire Confession, the Statements of Faith. Others have held to the Westminster Confession. But these these aren't infallible documents. These are simply Statements of Faith. They're not the 67th book of the Bible. They're not God's Word. Scripture is the final authority, not what are even very helpful documents for us. 
in like manner the position papers that we hold to here at our church. They're helpful documents, but they're not the word of God. They're not infallible. They're not perfect. Christian books, same category. I like a good Christian book as much as the next person. But they're not infallible. They're not the final authority. The word of God is. And it's the word of God that must bind our conscience, not our own man-made traditions. And there's many of these things that we could put into the category of Christian liberty. Things like how one should dress or the particular hobbies one can have or how we might educate one, our children or one another, how we, well, the music we listen to or the politics we follow or the entertainment that we enjoy or how we conduct pre-marriage relationships, all the different many, 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 and we could just let that risk, list run on all morning of Christian liberties fall into this camp. And Christ is not saying that convictions of conscience or traditions are wrong. He's stating that they're wrong when one, they usurp the authority of Scripture in determining how one and other are to live, and two, the basis of our justification with God. That's a big, long sentence. Let me break it down. I have this tradition, whatever it may be. There's two ways I can go wrong with it. Wrong way number one, I take it and I say, everybody else has got to follow that tradition. That's the only way God can be honored is if you do this. We know that as legalism. But it also can be wrong when I say, you don't have to do this, but I've got to do this to honor God. If I don't do this to honor God, then he's not going to get glory out of my life. And what happens is, we take the traditions of men, and we elevate them, elevate them, elevate them, to the realization that this is the way God's pleased with us. And we take what God's word says is how we are to be pleasing to him, and it begins to drop and drop and drop. And yeah, we, we think, yeah, everybody's a sinner. I struggle a little bit too. Yes, I've gotten angry with my wife, not been kind to my children. Shouldn't have looked at that person that way. Shouldn't have thought that thought. But at least I'm doing this. You gotta be very careful there. That's taking the traditions of men and raising them over the commandments of God. I'm going to show us in a minute why that's so strong. Or the, sec- or the third reason, really, is the base of our, basis of our justification with God. Well, as long as I do these things, I know I'm right with God. He's going he's to continue to love and bless me if I do these things, the man-made things. So what is a good test to determine whether these traditions have more authority than they should in our lives? Well, one test might be how we react when someone we know takes a position differing than ours. Or, and not necessarily how we publicly react, react to them, but how we privately react. Or how are we even then to handle differences of Christian liberty and conscience as believers? And it's very clear we're to handle them humbly, we're to handle them kindly, we're to look at Christian liberty through the lens of Scripture rather than looking at Scripture through the lens of Christian liberty. And you get those things wrong and you could be in a world of hurt. But what's the main reason here? Let me close with this. What is the main reason for Christ's concern of whether Scripture or tradition has the final authority? And the answer is it's because who gets authority, who has authority gets to the heart of the gospel. And let me explain this. James 2 verse 10. 
Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And I just noted that sometimes we're not careful. We can take the traditions of men and we elevate them over the commandments of God. And one of the reasons we do so is because oftentimes we can keep our traditions. Yeah, I can always listen to the right music. I can dress this certain way. I can do this certain thing. I can always, whatever the man-made tradition is, right? Can I always keep the word of God? No. I fail in every point so often. And here James 2.10 says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. And so when we raise this up and we bring this down, really the heart of it is this. The authority of God's word is what helps us to see that there is no merit in me as a sinner and all the merit is Jesus Christ. It robs the wonder and beauty and mystery of Christ on the cross for me. It's now, I've got some good things that he likes. Rather than seeing in the law, there is no way I can be acceptable to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. I fail in every point. I fail, even if I just failed in one point, even if you have your entire slate white cleaned, You're going to go wrong by lunch today. And so when we lift this up to the detriment of this, we actually diminish the wondrous mystery of the work of Christ for us upon that tree. That's why Christ is so concerned about who has has authority. Because if, if it's traditions that have authority, then the deity of Christ, the wonder of Christ, the perfect son of God, Okay, yeah, he was a good guy, but you know. But if you can't do anything to merit relationship with God, but by the merit of Jesus Christ, it gets God glory, it keeps you humble, it gives you all the hope in the world, and your hope is not found in something that can move. It's found in the immovable work of Jesus Christ for us. This is, uh, this, this is highlighted in the, in the, I won't, we're not going to go there, but it's highlighted in the story of Luke 18 of the publican and the Pharisee. And really what's happening here is the publican is, is finding justice in, in his works. The Pharisee, excuse me, the Pharisee is, find, is finding justice in his works. And the publican is finding justice in the mercy of Jesus Christ. And so when scripture is our final authority, then the wonder of God's love and grace to us through the person and work of Jesus Christ is exponentially more wonderful and incomprehensible because our justification is no longer found in how we are doing, but in what Christ did for us. And it gives us the ability to love others that much more. So I'm not sure where you are today. I know many of you, but some of you are visitors. Where is your justification before an almighty God? Is it found in what you are doing? Is it found in, in how you are living out this life? Is it found in, in, in what you're wearing or thinking or all of those things? Is it found in traditions of men? Or is it found in the fact that Christ alone has the power to save? That the blood of Jesus is the only thing that can give you access to the Father. And only by recognizing that blood spilt for you, seeing in him alone the ability to be saved, and then responding in repentance, are you able to have a relationship with God? That's the only way. You're to look at the law, which is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ, and you're to say, you know what? 
Not only can I not keep this whole law perfectly, I don't even wash my pots as well as I could. I mean, that's what he's saying in many ways here. You're trying all this stuff and you're failing on every front. We do. But for those who will put their trust in Jesus Christ, it's now no longer about whether or not we fail or succeed. It's about the fact that Christ is the only one who succeeded. And that gives us grace, that gives us mercy, that gives us desire, that gives us to hope to continually, day by day, get out of bed, knowing that our merit is not whether or not we're going to do it perfectly, but then we plead, oh God, would you help us that you might gain some bit of glory from my life. I am a wretched sinner. You are a wonderful Savior. Can you not gain just a slight bit through me? Help me to look like Christ today. We put our traditions over the word of God. It's very difficult to see our need to call out to him in that way. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. Because it is your word that we can go to and see that we are to be those who are most pitied if it was not for Jesus Christ. We are crazy to be sitting here when we could be doing so many other things if this word is not true. Oh, but Father, we thank you that this word is true. And it's not true because we want it to be. It's not true because it's just come down through generations. It's true because you are true, because you are everlasting, because you are God and you've created all things and you've taken us, you've taken us and you've shown us that you are true by transforming us from darkness into light. Father, we do things now that we would have never been able to comprehend that we would ever have been able to do. And it's because you changed us. You took the old nature, you buried it, and you raised us up in newness of life to walk in Christ. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your word. And we ask that you would help us to continually place it as the final authority in our life. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen.